Welcome to this podcast of the Sunday Message from Hope Gateway in Portland, Maine. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 515 Woodford Street or on Zoom or by the live broadcast on Facebook. Visit our website at hopegateway.com to learn more. Whether you live near or far, we hope you find this message meaningful wherever you are. Join us in doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with God. Well, good morning once again. We've been following the story of Jesus' birth through the lens of Luke's gospel. And I'm really, really glad that we've chosen to stick to one gospel this year rather than jumping around from one to the other. Because that means we get to hear the story that we hardly ever get to hear, the story of uh, Simeon and Anna. So no Nagi today. Um, instead, we're going to go to the temple with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And Jesus has been born. The angels have sung on the hillside. The shepherds have come to worship the babe that is swaddled and placed in that feeding trough. And now Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to engage in that prescribed ritual, that blessing that Elizabeth shared with us and with the children. The story comes to us from the second chapter of Luke's gospel, verses 21 to 38. When eight days had passed, Jesus' parents circumcised him and gave him the name Jesus. This was the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived. When the time came for their ritual cleansing, in accordance with the law from Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It is written in the Torah, Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. They offered a sacrifice in keeping with what's stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. A man named Simeon was in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout. He eagerly anticipated the restoration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple. Meanwhile, Jesus' parents brought the child to the temple so that they could do for him what was customary under the law. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God and said, Now, Master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. It is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a, story, and a glory for your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed by what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This boy is assigned to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that generates opposition, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your innermost being too. There was also a prophet, Anna, 
the daughter of Phanuel, who belonged to the tribe of Asher. He was very old. After she married, she had lived with her husband seven years. She was now an eighty-four-year-old widow. She never left the temple area, but worshipped God with fasting and prayer day and night. She approached at that very moment and began to praise God and to speak about Jesus to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So Mary and Joseph um, have had their child circumcised, and they've given him the name Jesus, as they were told to do uh, by the angel, as Mary was told to do. And then they go to the temple in Jerusalem, and um, they participate in this sacred birth ritual, um, a ritual that's part of their culture, part of their tradition. And when they do, they encounter these two old people, an old man and an old woman. I don't usually like using the word old, but we're told in this text, <laughs> especially now as I'm getting there, I'm kind of there, um, that, um, that actually uh, Anna, you know, they're saying she's 84. Some of the texts actually say she's been a widow for 84 years. I've got to put her way over 100, right? So we're talking, these people have been around for a long time. And um, so... To me, what we're seeing here is um, a bookend to what we saw the first Sunday in Advent when Sarah preached about a man and a woman both being visited by an angel, right? And we saw what their responses were. Two different response, well, similar response, actually, and different consequences. Well, now we have a man and a woman at the end of the birth narrative. It's, it's a bookend, um, and I had never noticed that before. But as this birth narrative is coming to its conclusion, here we have this completeness to it, um, this man and this woman now getting this opportunity to experience this blessing and to, and, and to take that child into themselves. Um, so Simeon has been told that he's not going to see death until he rests his eyes on God's Messiah. And so he takes Jesus into his arms, and he does this praising God, and he gives this amazing um, prophecy, essentially, to, to um, Mary and Joseph and tells them um, that, that Jesus will be the cause of the falling and rising of many in, in Israel. Falling and rising. Whoever say it that way? I mean, it seems kind of backwards, doesn't it? Don't we usually say rising and falling? This is kind of funny. We're hearing now that he's going to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel. Falling and rising. Dying and rising. Maybe little hints coming along here. Maybe little hints of death and resurrection. I don't know if that's so. Um, but it's clear that something new, something different is about to happen. And then there's Anna. When we're introduced to her, the gospel writer has a bit of fun, I think. The fact that she's in this story at all, she's just a woman. Women aren't worth much in those days, especially widows. I mean, who are they? Somebody that, you know, yeah, you're supposed to take care of them, right? This is the gospel. This is the, what, the, what the prophets have always said. You got to take care of those women and orphans. But, you know, she's, she's in the temple, 
And she's got a place in Luke's gospel. Amazing. Amazing. Not only a place, but we hear that she has an important place because we learn that this 84-year-old, at least 84-year-old widow is a prophetess. The only one mentioned in the whole of the New Testament. And as a prophetess, guess what? She outranks Simeon. Ah, believe it or not, she outranks the man in the story. Wow. Now, that might not seem like a lot to us. We're used to women rising up in power and doing amazing things. But in the first century, unheard of. So we're catching a little glimpse here in the Gospel of Luke about the way that women may be playing a part in this amazing story that's unfolding and seeing a little bit about the way the world's about to be turned on its head. Remember Mary's beautiful words from the Magnificat. God has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Sounds a lot like falling and rising to me. So in Anna, we are seeing an example of the way a lowly woman, a widow, who would not be able to venture past even the outer courtyard of the temple, is already being lifted up by the gospel writer. And when she lays her eyes on Jesus, well, she's not ready to die like Simeon, right? <laughs> she's energized and she goes out there and she's ready to tell everybody to speak to everyone she sees about the redemption of Israel that's about to happen here. Well, all of this is real interesting. I love it. It's, it's fun to kind of pick up on some of these, these little things that happen in these stories. But I've been asked to share a little about ritual and what the place of ritual might be in our weary world. So we've already heard a little bit about that from Elizabeth and the children. Mary and Joseph are engaged in a ritual. And it's likely that Simeon made a ritual of going to the temple. And Anna, we hear, is in the temple night and day. Again, there's this weird word reversal. Wouldn't we say day and night? Well, here it says night and day. It's kind of flipping things around here. This writer's having some good times. But night and day, she's engaged in her ritual of prayer and fasting. So what is a ritual? In our um, Advent little study group book that we've been using um, this season, Cecilia D. Armstrong writes that ritual is an act infused with meaning. Ritual is an act infused with meaning. They mark sacred turning points in our lives. They help us make meaning of celebrations, losses, and transitions. So what, just think with me for a bit and let's share uh, a moment. What are some of the big rituals that mark important moments of our lives? What are they? Think of some rituals. Baptism. Yeah. Wedding. Graduation. Confirmation. <laughs> going to camp. That is a ritual, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And a countdown happens every year, doesn't it? Becky. Yeah. Yeah. Funerals. Another one, right? We have rituals that mark these 
important times of transition, celebrations, losses, transitions. But then there's the, also the day-to-day rituals. And we heard a little bit about some of that from Elizabeth this morning. Grace before meals, maybe some bedtime prayers. What else? What other day-to-day rituals might there be in your life? you have any? <laughs> Tea in the morning. Yeah. Some of us may have a time where we sit and we just kind of meditate. That's a ritual, isn't it? Read the daily devotion. We have the one that comes, not ours, but somebody else's, yours. A discipline. Yeah, so that's that's a ritual that you do every day is to find time and space um, to read that. As I was reflecting on this topic over the last couple of weeks, um, I thought of a couple of examples of rituals um, that I've experienced. Um, the first one involves my favorite sport, basketball. Now, as a Duke alumni, as both of us are, Art and I, um, we are avid Duke basketball fans. Um, basketball, Duke basketball comes on TV, and we have to put on our little Duke um, sweatshirts and we park ourselves there, and we get ourselves all settled, and we, and we watch the game. Now, recently, and this is becoming an annual event, Art and I have made a pilgrimage down to Madison Square Garden so he could play in the alumni pep band, and I could be in the stands cheering on my team along with thousands of other people and just having a good old time, especially when they win, right? Um, but there I noticed a lot of rituals um, as I was watching that game, just, just less than two weeks ago, that are involved in basketball. And the, the most of them happen at the foul line. A foul line when the player's about to, to shoot that basket, right? Other basketball fans might be kind of catching on to what I'm saying. So, right, don't they do some funny rituals? Um, so they're there, and, you know, some of them bounce the ball three times, throw it up in the air with a little spin, bounce it again a couple times, and then shoot. You might have somebody do a little bit of tap in the back of their heels, and, you know, then they're going to bounce it, and, and then they're going to throw it up in the air and shoot. My favorite player, though, recently, is somebody who, in the midst of all the craziness that's going around, and all the wild, funny things that are happening at the goal line from the opposing fans stands there takes a deep breath and you can see him centering wow in all the craziness of all that he centers and in the midst of that you can almost see him willing the basket you can almost see him making it go through the hoop before it does right and then inevitably it almost always does it almost always goes through that hoop Ritual. That's his ritual. Second ritual that came to mind as I was thinking about that, this was um, a ritual that my co- a colleague and I engaged in. Um, when I was, uh, the last eight years of my professional life, I worked at a counseling center in Des Moines, Iowa. And my work there included being a spiritual director. It included offering educational programs for clergy and congregations. And it also included doing conflict work with congregations that were in trouble. The United Methodist Conference used to 
hire us to go in and work with all the highest level conflict um, that was happening within the, the congregations that they were serving. Um, I, I will never forget when one of the district superintendents who had been in the Air Force and his job in the Air Force was to defuse bombs said to me, he'd rather defuse a bomb than go into one of these churches. <laughs> and he sent us off <laughs> to go and do that. And before going into any of those churches, I had a partner, Carla and I would do this work together. We had a ritual. We'd drive there, however far away it was. But once we got there, shut off the car engine, and we'd sit there in silence. And then we'd share with each other our intentions for how we wanted to be as we walked into those churches. How did we want to be? Loving, compassionate, listening, caring. You know, what were the things that we were important to us? Not our agenda, not reviewing our plan for what the activities were, but how were we going to be? And that was our ritual. And I don't think we could have ever navigated some of the tough work we did, kind of tiptoeing through some of those minefields without having that ritual before we went in those doors. There are rituals we engage in in church, aren't there? We light candles. Why a lot of them today, right? A whole bunch of them today. And why do we do that? What's our intention there? What's it for? Is it just because it looks pretty? Why are we lighting candles? We light candles that Yeah, when people pass away, sometimes we light candles. That's right. Why do you think we do that? What are we trying to remind ourselves of? What what's happening there? It, um, one of the meanings of candles today is to erase our prayer. To raise our prayers up to God, they're a light shining in the darkness, aren't they? Yeah, a symbol. They're a symbol of Christ's light, the light of Christ shining among us, the light that lives within each of us, right? There's a meaning behind these candles. It's not just a empty ritual, not just something pretty we do. What about the meal we share each Sunday morning? Communion, we share this sacred meal together. What's our intention in doing that? We have a meaning for that. Are we just like needing a stretch sometime in the midst of the service? A, you know, a little mid-morning snack. Is that what it's about? No, I'll leave it. The light. A lot of people don't care when it waits. But. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't have bread. Yeah, that's yeah, true. What's, it, what's special about that meal that we share? Why are we? What's our intention? And coming forward with our hands open, ready to receive this piece of bread. What is that? What are we doing? Yeah, we're entering into community. We're entering into a shared community. We're becoming one. Our old liturgy is to say we're becoming one with God, one with each other, one in ministry to all the world. There's intention behind this meal, right? There's something important about it. Well, sometimes our rituals become so important to us that we lose sight of our intentions. Hmm. And then we get stuck, right? We have to do it this way. 
because we always have, right? Um, sometimes, because of the pain we bear, bear or our own weariness, all we can do is go through the motions. It's all we have in us to do. I don't suppose Anna and Simeon were attentive every single day in that temple to every family who came in to offer their turtle doves. Can you imagine that they would be every single day? But when the moment came, they were in position. They were there, ready to recognize the one who came and changed everything. So our rituals open up space within us so that we might recognize Emmanuel, God with us, so that in the lit candles, I might see the light of Christ shining in your eyes, so that in the smallest bite of breath, we might all be filled afraid this was going to happen. <laughs> My ear just does not hold this well. <clears throat> um, so there are all kinds of uh, rituals we engage in during the Advent Christmas season, right? Tons of them, right? Think about that. What do we do? What, what happens during Advent Christmas? Ooh, we light a candle each Sunday. We have the Advent wreath. Mm-hmm. A decorated tree. Yep. Some of us have lights on our houses or on the bushes in our houses, right? There are all kinds of, we do a lot of gift giving, things that, things that become uh, rituals. Yeah, we give presents out. Um, so I want to read to us um, a little piece about kind of where we are right now, um, right after Christmas. It's all come and it's about to all be gone. Um, it's a little piece written um, in this book called Seasons of Hope, and the author is David Butler. And I've just changed a little bit of this to make it a little more inclusive. So, so settle in for a minute, because he says things so much better than I can that I'd like to read, read this whole piece to you. At some point, the celebration ends. The visits and the parties are over, and things get back to the way things are. Normal, ordinary, routine. We've had our refreshing, refreshing little dose of giving and receiving gifts of sentiment and warmth. And maybe we have reconnected with family or cried over the lack of family in our lives. Maybe we've had a time of memories and good cheer or made a pilgrimage to the church of our choice. Maybe that's all the season and the holiday amounts to, and maybe that's enough. We need this kind of stuff once a year. We need some measure of warm sentiment. We need a reason to connect with family and old friends. We need to discover again that it can feel good to give gifts to each other. Maybe all of this is enough. But didn't we want it to mean so much more? Didn't we celebrate this event that marks all the difference and changes everything that is? Aren't we those who believe that the Christ child transforms the world? But how is the world different? Can we look around this world objectively, dispassionately, and really say that the birth of Christ changes things? Can we really say that our cozy and sentimental rituals, our celebrations of Christmas, have made any long-standing difference at all? Once the world has gotten back to what we call normal, has a killing stopped? Has the greed lost its grip? Have the powerful suddenly grown attentive to the needs of the poor? 
We have shared yet again the Christmas message. Christ is born. We've gone through all these rituals. Christ is revealed and present in human birth and the human child. We've shared that God is alive in the ordinary humanness of a simple of simple people in poor circumstances. If we think all of this is just part of a nice story or some romantic myth from another age, then it really doesn't make any difference. Our world is untouched. We've had our holiday. We can kiss our mother and our Aunt Martha and go back to work. There is another baby. Ah, <laughs> okay. All right. The world is the same, and we are the same. We've had our refreshing time, and now our lives go on. But if we believe that this Christmas story has told us anew something fundamental about the way life is and the way we are and God is, and if we believe that this Christmas story is our story about where the meaning is and where the forgiveness is and where the love is in your life and my life and the life of the whole planet, if we really believe that, then nothing is the same. Nothing can ever be the same. When we have once again celebrated this Christmas mystery, the celebration doesn't just go away, it's not over. The reawakening of love has made us new people. No sharing of love is ever without its transforming effect on the heart. And that's because our lives have been touched by this birth. And we give and care as we do. It's because our lives have been grasped by the Spirit of Christ that we get up in the morning and hug our kids and do our best and want to sing now and then. It's because we're in love with this vision of life that we have hope no matter what and a reason to be and laugh and reach out. It makes all the difference because this celebration was just a reminder. All those rituals were just a reminder to keep our eyes open to the God around us and the Christ beside us and the spirit that is in us. All those rituals, all the rituals in our lives can mean nothing unless there's an intention beneath them, unless there's some reason undergirding all of that stuff we do. Our intentions make a difference. So Christmas has come and gone once again, but now it's New Year's Eve. It's New Year's. I told you I'd get there. <laughs> I'm not usually one for making New Year's resolutions. They tend to get broken all too quickly. And I end up feeling guilty for not keeping them. I wonder what it would be like, instead, to simply name our intentions for the year to come and then find rituals in our lives to help support those intentions. So I'm going to ask us, as we close this time together, what are your intentions for the coming year? What kind of person do you want to be? What do you want people to see in you? What kind of parent, grandparent, spouse, friend, sibling, neighbor do you want to be? And then, what are the rituals that might help support your intentions? Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. 
To hear more about Hope Gateway and to discover how together we can do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, visit our website at hopegateway.com.